This is Science Moab, a show exploring the science happening in Southeast Utah and the Colorado Plateau. I'm Peggy Hodgkins, and today we are talking about bugs. More specifically, aquatic insects in the Grand Canyon of the Colorado River. Hi, my name's Anya Metcalf. I'm an ecologist, which means I study how organisms relate to their environment. But what you should really know about me is that I really love bugs and I really like exploring rivers. And, and that's really what's framed my science background and in my career. Right now, I work with USGS Grand Canyon Monitoring and Research Center in Flagstaff. And I work on pretty wide variety of projects, but all with the aim of better understanding aquatic food webs in the Colorado River system, and especially how they're affected by dam operations. Anya grew up with a fascination for insects, and as an undergraduate, looked at the biogeography of aquatic beetles in springs on the Colorado Plateau. For her master's study at Northern Arizona University, she looked at spinning caddisflies across the Colorado River Basin. The idea that you can focus on one particular species or group of organisms in order to get a measure of how well an ecosystem is doing. You know, kind of like taking a pulse, only we can't take a river's pulse, but we can collect invertebrates and compare them year to year and see how, how organisms are doing living in that river. With bioindicators like aquatic insects, they're really sensitive to, to sudden changes in the environment. And that can be to a, a, a wide range of different things, like a big change in water temperature or a sudden change in turbidity or a sudden influx of some kind of invisible toxin or metals that we might not even know are in the river. One way to, to know that something has changed is to see a response from invertebrates. And in terms of an insect's life cycle, can you explain what that means? Yeah, uh, life cycles describe the different forms and phases that an animal goes through during its life. With insects, most have three life stages, uh, an egg, a larva, and an adult. And then others, like butterflies, have a fourth life stage where they pupate before they become an adult. It's more specific to Aquatic insects in the river, we have both semi-metabolists, so that's those three life stages, and holometabolists, uh, four life stages. To give an example of that, of what a life cycle might look like, my favorite insects are caddisflies, uh, and those are kind of like butterflies of the river. Uh, they've got those four life stages. So the females will adhere their eggs to submerged rocks and plants right below the river surface most of the time. And then those eggs will hatch into larvae. And just like caterpillars, these caddisfly larvae have specialized silk glands, and they'll use those in really creative ways. Like some larvae build tiny cases, usually tube-shaped, where they'll use those silk glands to put together rocks and twigs and whatever materials are available, really, to create these mobile shelters. Other species will use those specialized silk glands to actually put little fishing nets out into the current to filter it for food particles. And then caddisfly larvae will also use that silk to build a pupil case, um, a lot like a cocoon. And when they're ready, anywhere from a few months or 
a whole year after hatching from their egg, a winged adult will emerge from the pupil case, swim to the water surface, dry its freshly formed wings, and fly off into the air. That's something that's really cool about aquatic insect life cycles is that most of the time they'll start with those first three life stages, egg, larva, and pupa, in the river. And as adults, they'll sprout wings and fly off into a whole new terrestrial world. So that's the really interesting life cycles to to look at from a food web perspective, because while they're in the river, they're really important food for fish. And then once they emerge as adults, they also become important prey for lizards and spiders and birds and bats. And they're really fueling food webs, both in and out of the water. Oh, wow. And I mean, what percentage do you think make it to that fourth stage? Oh gosh, that's such a cool question. <laughs> I think that would vary a lot on yeah. um, what species we're talking about and um, there are something where they, yeah, yeah, where they live. Like, say it's a intermittent river, and um, you're a larva that got stuck in a tiny pool with a bunch of fish. You're gonna all get gobbled up. Right. <laughs> that's pretty neat. So specifically, you're studying the aquatic insects in the Colorado, in the, in the Grand Canyon, and being below a very large dam, I know you have some interesting fluctuations, obviously, in the river. So how have the insect life cycles in the Grand Canyon, how are they being affected by the fact that they're below a very large dam? The first thing you have to think about is when a dam gets built, it immediately transforms the river really drastically, right? Especially in an arid desert environment. When Glen Canyon Dam went in, first you had a huge section of river that turned into a reservoir. So any aquatic insects that were living upstream of Glen Canyon Dam, they're probably not there anymore (laughs) because living in a river and living in a lake, that's two very different environments. So that's that's the first really big obvious impact you've got to think of on organisms when a dam goes in is the ones that are upstream of the dam and are now in a lake. Downstream of the dam, you've also got really drastic changes. So the Colorado River pre-dam is very warm and um, very turbid, has a lot of suspended sediment. And it also fluctuated a lot in temperature with with the seasons of the year. And it also used to flood up to, you know, 80,000 CFS, which up in Moab, you still get all those those huge floods occasionally through Cataract Canyon. But downstream of Glen Canyon Dam, um, flows are completely controlled by the dam, where we used to have warm, turbid, highly variable river. Now we have a cold, clear, fairly stable river. And I say fairly stable with a little apostrophe because it's fairly stable throughout the whole year on a big picture where we don't have flows alternating from, you know, a thousand CFS to 80,000 CFS as they did pre-dam. With hydropeaking flows, water is released from the dam in response to peak power demand. So you can have kind of these artificial tides in the river where the water is going up and down throughout the day in response to power needs in Las Vegas and Los Angeles. And that is 
very much an artifact of a dam regulated river uh, because you just you don't get a tide in a natural river ecosystem. We've been finding evidence that these hydropeaking operations are having an effect on aquatic insect populations. The dam being there is affecting the water temperature and its flow. So how more specifically does it affect a life cycle of the insects? Well, one thing that we're finding specific to those hydropeaking flows that's hard on insects is specific to the shoreline. And with that artificial tide I mentioned and the water going up and down throughout the day, the aquatic insects didn't didn't evolve with that and they're they're not ready for it, um, I guess you could say. A lot of aquatic insects lay their eggs pretty close to the shore on, on rocks and submerged vegetation. They're not expecting that the river is going to drop out on them in an hour or so. What we found is that aquatic insects are laying their eggs and then the tide is dropping and those eggs are being exposed to, you know, to to dry air and, you know, Grand Canyon gets pretty hot, 120 degrees in the under canyon in the middle of summer. So those eggs are drying up. And we've been finding this pattern where aquatic insects usually lay their eggs right around dusk and sections of the river that have high tide at dusk will have less aquatic insects than sections of the river that have low tide at dusk. And that's because if you lay your eggs at high tide and the water drops out, then your eggs are going to dry up. If you lay your eggs at low tide and the water comes up, the eggs will stay dry and they'll be fine. So that's a really interesting pattern that we found and attributed to the hydropeaking operations. And so do you have any, uh, do you have a feel for the, the amount of effect on insect life cycles? I mean, how many, how many of these insects are never even getting to their second stage of life, not because of being eaten, but because of water problems. Oh, these, these eggs need water. If the water drops out on eggs, <laughs> they're probably not going to make it. So our partners at Utah State University did an experiment in the Green River where they actually put cinder blocks in the river, allowed insects to lay their eggs on the cinder blocks, and then they removed those cinder blocks for one hour and, and counted exactly that, how many of those eggs survived. And it was, it was something like a 97% mortality rate in just an hour. And in Grand Canyon, we're looking at often higher temperatures than those eggs were exposed to and certainly longer time periods than one hour. So I, I would estimate it at 100%. If, if those eggs are exposed to dry air, they're not going to make it. So how is that affecting everything that eats those, mainly fish, but also the lizards and everything else that eventually would eat these insects? I mean, how are those populations doing? So there's been a lot of interest and research on fish in the Grand Canyon reach of the Colorado River. What people are finding in, in a number of ways, ranging from complex population models to directly measuring fish fat to going out and fishing and paying attention to what they're catching is that fish are hungry. Down in Grand Canyon, we're, we're just seeing skinny fish. We're seeing really drastic swings year to year in, in fish populations. And a lot of it has been attributed to 
low, low food availability and these fish are really relying on aquatic insects and sometimes there's just not enough around to, to eat. And this applies both to native, um, many of them endangered fish like the humpback chub in the little Colorado river and also to the rainbow trout up at Lee's Ferry because that's a really popular place to go fishing. You know, we've talked with guys who are, you know, trying to reinstate the humpback in certain places, the little Colorado being one, but without the proper food, I mean, it's, it's tough to do. So what, what did you, or what is research is being done to help address this problem with the, the food shortages? So the pattern that we saw where reaches of the river had, some reaches had more insects than other and that that had to do with hydropeaking was really exciting because hydropeaking is is a problem that's manageable, right? It's human created in the first place. With those findings, the Glen Canyon Dam Adaptive Management Program, they decided based on our findings that it was worth running an experiment to see if less hydropeaking might lead to more aquatic insects and therefore help those food webs in Grand Canyon. So we've been calling them bug flows. And from 2018 to 2020, there was an experiment where from May to August each year, there was no hydropeaking on the weekends. Um, so kind of giving the, giving the bugs a, um, a weekend off from the water going up and down and drying out their eggs. We hoped that those two days a week might lead to a increase in aquatic insect production, both in numbers and also in diversity. I mean, did it, did it make a difference in, in numbers? Yes. Across those three years, we found that it improved natural processes in Grand Canyon. So we saw a increase in caddisflies more than anything else. And that was a really exciting response because there's not a lot of caddisflies in Grand Canyon to begin with we saw a huge increase in them. So that was a, a really exciting outcome. As far as you know, has this type of research been done under other, you know, in other rivers below dams in terms of uh, bug flows and or, you know, insect life cycles and food for fish and things like that? Well, bug flows were a really, really novel experiment. As far as I know, no dam in the world ever has been managed with the explicit goal of increasing aquatic insect production and improving the food web. It's been really exciting to see our research actually applied in such a wonderful, complex, and interesting landscape. So what what are your hopes and your, you know, with you and your colleagues in terms of what where you're going next with all this research? What direction are you are you heading? We've got a few things in the work. A few projects I'm working on right now that I'm really excited about. One is looking at bats in Grand Canyon. So we have a ton of data and evidence that, that fish are really reliant on aquatic insects in Grand Canyon. Right now I've been looking at data on bat foraging activity in the Grand Canyon River Corridor. And we're finding that bats are also really queuing into all of these aquatic insects emerging from the river. So that's been really exciting to look at. 
how do you monitor bat activity? There's a, a few different ways to measure bat activity, to look at bats in general. One really obvious one is to, is to catch them. Where that's kind of complicated and you need a lot of training and equipment in order to do that. But the other method is acoustics, which is really, really handy. So with acoustics, all you need is um, a, a bat detecting device that has a microphone that will let you basically listen in on all of the echolocation calls that bats are using to navigate the world and find their food. All of those calls are, are really unique. And by looking at call files, you can figure out what bat species are present down to the species level, just as off of a call. And you can also often figure out what they're doing, whether they're just navigating around or if they're doing a feeding call and foraging for food. A lot of the aquatic insect data is collected by river guides through a community science program. The community science program, formerly known as citizen science, helps federal agencies accelerate their studies through public participation. In this case, river runners and guides. That's our bread and butter. We send river runners, a lot of them commercial river guides, out with what we call light traps, which is a little plastic Tupperware with a light balanced on one edge of it. And you pour a bottle of ethanol into the Tupperware and aquatic insects, like any flying insects in general are attracted to that light, come to the trap, and then they get trapped and preserved in, in that ethanol. So we have river runners set out those light traps for one hour on their trips each night at camp. And that gives us this really amazing data set. With the bats, we started also sending out these bat detectors. We've been using these really fun ones um, called echo meters and they plug into an iPad and they actually give you a visual and you get a live feed of those bat calls as the bats are flying over you and eating their dinner. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> Sampling insects in Grand Canyon is, is really hard because <laughs> yeah. most, most rivers, you can just wade in and pick up some rocks and, and sample the benthos, the river bottom, and see what's there. There's very few places in the Grand Canyon, where you can just wade into the Colorado River and pick up a rock. And yeah. even if you can safely get down to the river bottom, <laughs> those rocks are usually cemented to the yeah. bottom. And you, and you shouldn't even try because, as, as you know, the river is really deep and very cold and very fast. So uh, we've, we've had to come up with novel ways of sampling in Grand Canyon. We sample by going out on a boat and hanging a net off of the front and sampling invertebrates that are suspended in the river channel and floating or drifting downstream. And we also use these light traps, which sample the adult form of aquatic insects as a way to very safely and simply measure aquatic insects. Well, Anya, thanks for talking with Science Moab and telling us all about the aquatic insects in the Grand Canyon. Thank you so much for having me. To learn more or listen to other Science Moab episodes, visit sciencemoab.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Science Moab newsletter by Rhonda Cook. Our theme music is by Jeremy Spaulding. 
And the show is produced by Peggy Hodgkins, Christina Young, and KZMU. If you love Science Moab, let us know. Leave a rating on Spotify or a review on iTunes. And consider supporting Science Moab by donating to the podcast at sciencemoab.org. This programming is unique to Moab, Utah, and your support makes it possible.